everybody. I am Thela Hussein Wetzel, a historic preservationist here in Cincinnati and the founder of Urbanist Media, an anti-racist community preservation not-for-profit. I am also the co-host of the podcast Urban Roots, which unearths little-known stories of urban history. And I'm Vanessa Quirk. I'm a cities journalist and DECA's Urban Roots co-host. As you may know, the first season of Urban Roots explored the history of three African-American neighborhoods in Cincinnati, Evanston, Avondale, and South Cumminsville. In that season, we turned back the clock to times when those neighborhoods were thriving. And then we explored the disinvestment of the 70s and 80s that instigated many of the challenges these communities continue to face today. But one important piece we didn't explore was how institutional investors have time and time again taken advantage of these kinds of neighborhoods' economic disadvantages. Right. Institutional investors, they are a huge part of the challenges facing communities today, but they are very hard to understand. Which is why we're super excited to talk to Dr. Hayden Shelby, an assistant professor of planning at the University of Cincinnati. Hi, Hayden. Hi. Hi. So, Hayden, as part of this course that you're teaching on housing systems, you have tasked your students with digging into the sticky issue of institutional investors in the form of something we were very excited to hear about, a podcast. So could you please start us off by explaining a little bit more about the class and the podcast? Sure. So we've started a podcast called If Cincinnati's Walls Could Talk, and it's all about Cincinnati's built environment and in particular, it's housing. And this first season is all about the housing policy history that laid the groundwork for large institutional investors to buy up lots of single-family homes in some of Cincinnati's neighborhoods and suburbs. Mm -hmm. And the goal that we have is to understand how we got here. The students were put into groups, and they were each tasked with narrating a different time period of housing history. So our seven episodes span from the late 1800s and early 1900s, when some of our first inner ring suburbs were first built with lots of single family homes, to later episodes that trace the major 20th century housing events that have impacted the city, like the construction of Interstate 75, which displaced many black households from the West End to other neighborhoods. And then we also dig into the subprime bubble and the foreclosure crisis of the early 2000s, which disproportionately impacted some of the neighborhoods that are now seeing a lot of investment in single family rentals. Mm -hmm. And apart from this podcast, the students and I are also convening a pair of community conversations about institutional investors. And our goal is to get a lot of different perspectives from different stakeholders on this issue. And we hope to help policymakers as well as residents and communities to create more effective responses to this issue. That makes sense. So why did you want to tackle the subject of institutional investors? Like, why did you find that it was important for you and your students to explore? Sure. So first of all, I think it's important to explain exactly what we mean by institutional investors in single family housing. Mm -hmm. So Institutional investor is a really broad term, but it it refers to corporate entities that hold a lot of homes in what they would call portfolios. And these corporations have investors. So they get at least some of their money from people who want to invest in real estate, but don't actually want to go out and buy and manage properties. And the exact legal form of institutional investors can vary. So in some parts of the country, private equity real estate firms are the dominant form that you see. 
But here in Cincinnati, at least that we know of, the most dominant form is called a real estate investment trust or a REIT. Okay. I have heard of REITs before because I've done some reporting in the past on this. And my understanding of REITs is that they're essentially companies that buy real estate all across the country on behalf of their investors. And they've been around since the 60s, I think. Right. So institutional investment in real estate is not a new thing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing either. In fact, as our first episode demonstrates, large investment by wealthy individuals and corporate entities enabled the construction of a lot of Cincinnati's early neighborhoods. But in recent years, the work of some entities, and particularly REITs, has changed. So to put it simply, these corporate entities that used to primarily invest in big commercial buildings or other types of real estate, they've started to focus on buying single-family homes for the purpose of renting them out. And you may have read in the Inquirer recently that the real estate brokerage firm Redfin estimates that right now about one in five single-family purchases in Cincinnati is done by an investor rather than a household that's seeking to live in that home. Wow. So in other words, these investors, who I assume are pretty savvy and have lots of resources behind them, are buying up single-family homes that otherwise just regular people might have bought? Yes, exactly. And that's concerning for a few reasons. First, a lot of the homes being purchased by investors in Cincinnati are moderately priced houses that might otherwise serve as starter homes for moderate income residents. And since investors can often make purchases with cash, they can easily outcompete your typical household who needs to buy with a mortgage. Mm. And so there's a lot of concern about what this is doing to home ownership rates and to the potential household level wealth that's being lost. Mm. Second concern is the rents being charged. Mm. For the past few months, Redfin has reported that Cincinnati is among the top five cities with the fastest rising rents in the country. Wow, that's just nuts. <laughs> yeah, and and I should say there are likely many drivers of that, mm. but folks who follow housing in Cincinnati have little doubt that institutional investors have played a significant role. Mm. And then there's a final reason that we're concerned, and that is that these investors may not be maintaining these homes properly. Mm. There is mounting evidence from the city that the biggest investors are also some of the biggest code violators in the area. Mm. And this raises concerns about both the quality of housing that people renting these properties are living in, but it also raises concerns about the potential knock-on effects of property values in the surrounding neighborhoods. Mm. Okay, so I think that's a really great overview of institutional investors and how they're impacting the city. You and your students spent a lot of time kind of getting into the nitty gritty of how it's evolved over history in Cincinnati. What were the major takeaways from your research and your students' research? Yeah, so I have to admit that one of the frustrating things I realized through seeing the students' research, is that the narrative of how we got into this situation is not as neat as I originally thought. Hmm. The neighborhoods that have been most impacted are different on a lot of levels. They're hmm. in different places. They came to be in different time periods. But nonetheless, there are some common threads. 
And the first is that they're generally older suburbs or suburbs turned neighborhoods like those in Price Hill. And they were built mostly for white and middle to upper income people moving away from the central city throughout the 20th century. And today, though, they tend to be much more racially and ethnically diverse. In fact, a lot of them are some of the most diverse places in our city. Mm. And this has happened as a lot of white households moved even further out. And a lot of racial and ethnic groups with low to moderate incomes started to settle in these areas. So there were some push factors that led to that in the city. The first was the creation of I-75, which went through Cincinnati's historically Black West End. And the West End was also impacted a couple decades later when some of the biggest public housing developments in the city were redeveloped. And that pushed people a little bit further out in the city and dispersed a lot of the people who were in our historically Black neighborhoods. What then happened in these places is that in the early 2000s, they became prime spots for risky mortgage lending practices, which were part of the subprime bubble and that later resulted in a lot of foreclosures. And the presence of a lot of foreclosed homes is one factor that contributed to there just being a lot of single family housing available for investors to buy up. Mm, That that makes sense. Yeah. And you mentioned that this project isn't just a podcast, but a series of community conversations. Can you explain why that was important for you to include? Yeah. So I've been hearing for a while, and we heard a lot more while the students were researching the podcasts, that this is a phenomenon that is on a lot of people's radars, but a lot of people don't really have a full understanding of it. They might be getting weird text messages or mailers offering to buy their houses. Other people might suddenly find themselves with different landlords. Mm. And still other people might be seeing the side of things where there are mounting code violations. But it's difficult to put all of these different pieces together to figure out what's going on. So you might have noticed when I was talking earlier, I say, you know, there are estimates or there are reports of. And as a researcher, I don't like talking in these terms, Mm. but we kind of have to because institutional investors are really hard to track. A lot of them operate under sometimes dozens of separate different names of limited liability corporations or LLCs. Mm. And that makes it so we don't have great data. And so what we need to do as a community is to come together and to figure out what we know, what we still need to know, and what we can do. Another goal of ours is just to get a lot of people in the same room and to put our heads together to figure out what responses might be available to us, whether it's at the level of policy or personal action. Mm. Cincinnati has actually been in the national spotlight for a couple of our ways that we're addressing this issue. One is by the Port of Cincinnati, and you'll hear about that in Episode 7. What they've done is they've bought up 194 properties that had been in the hands of an institutional investor, and they're trying to move as many residents of these properties as possible into homeownership. Additionally, State Senator Bill Blessing has introduced a bill at the state level that would, among other things, give tenants a fighting chance to buy their homes if they are being sold out from under them. But these efforts are really just first steps. And so our hope is that by getting a lot of people around the table, we can come up with other ideas. 
Right. I mean, it's definitely a huge pressing issue in Cincinnati at that time. And I'm sure a lot of people want to be involved. So how do they join these conversations? I'm so glad you asked. Okay. (laughs) We are going to hold two sessions. One is in person and one is online. So we're hoping we can reach the maximum number of people in ways that are available to them. The in-person one will be held at the College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning Building, or the DAP Building, right here on UC campus. And that will be on Saturday, November 12th from 9 to 11 a.m. And the Zoom session will be held on Friday, November 18th from 2 to 4 p.m. And we welcome everyone, residents, elected leaders, other civic leaders. We'll put the link to register in the show notes. Or folks can email me directly at shelbyhm at uc.edu. That's S-H-E-L-B-Y-H-M as in Mary at uc.edu. I am super excited for this community conversation. Are you going to be there, Decca? I will be there. I will absolutely be there. I'll, uh, I'll come to the virtual one. Yes. Okay, awesome. So, okay, so Dr. Shelby, where can people listen to these episodes? So we'll be posting them on all of your favorite podcasting apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And we'll also be posting them to YouTube and we'll provide links for people on the Center for Cities website. Great. And hopefully, Hayden, you're willing to return so we can record like a final episode with you after the community conversations and we can just synthesize everything that you all have learned throughout the process. Absolutely. We want to put the results and our lessons learned from everyone who engages in these conversations out there to the public to create an even bigger conversation. Mm. And also before we go, I want to thank some of our partners who have generously sponsored and donated the funds to get this project off the ground and to pay for some lovely equipment and supplies, as well as the expertise of our friends at Urbanist Media. And those partners are GBBN, LISC of Greater Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Development Fund, and U.S. Bank. All right. So we will include the links to the podcast and the community events in the show notes. Yes. So go ahead, especially if you're in Cincinnati and you care about your city and what you can do about institutional investors, make sure to check out If Cincinnati's Walls Could Talk. And yeah, consider joining Hayden and Decca and her students at that community conversation. And let's keep the work going. Yes, please come join us. All right. Thank Thank you you. so much. Bye. Bye.